Hello, and welcome to this podcast presented by the Southern Alberta Council on Public Affairs. Good afternoon. Good afternoon, ladies and gentlemen. Welcome to today's Southern Alberta Council of Public Affairs. We want to welcome all of our Shaw viewers. We want to welcome our CKXU listeners at the university. And, of course, all of you here in attendance today. May I remind you that the... Just the attendance is $11, and with it you get a lunch. So don't forget that extra loony. Memberships are available with Lisa Lambert at $25 a year. This is probably the cheapest, Leth- cheapest membership in Lethbridge. <clears throat> Just to remind you about the format for the lunches, for the session, we have half an hour of our talk by our speaker, half an hour to eat your lunch, and then another half hour for question and answers. So it's my pleasure today to tell you a little bit about our speaker, Dr. Ian McLaughlin. He's going to take us on a trip to Oz. Ian was born and raised in Montreal and obtained his BA and MA from Carleton University in Ottawa. He completed his doctorate at the University of Toronto in 1990. Ian has taught in the geography departments at the University of Toronto in Mississauga from 1985 to 86, and the University of Windsor, 1986 to 88, and Carleton University, 1988 to 89, before joining the Department of Geography at the University of Lethbridge in 1989. In 1991, Ian taught international studies on a faculty exchange to Hokai Gakuen, is that pretty close? University, Sapporo, Japan. He was a research associate at the Instituto de Geografia Universidad Autonoma de Mexico during his study leave. In 1995 to 1996, oh, that's when it was, sorry. In 2003-04, he was a visiting scholar at the Center of Canadian Studies at the University of Edinburgh. On Ian's most recent study leave, he was at the School of Earth and Environment at the University of Western Australia in Perth. Ian's last presentation to SACPA was entitled Lethbridge's Beef Bonanza, February 14, 2002. Let's welcome Ian McLaughlin. Get ready for your trip to Oz. Thank you, Bev. Very kind introduction. And thanks to all of you. 
worked very hard on this talk, and I thought, what if I put a talk together and nobody shows up? It doesn't seem like a very grabby title. Next week, they're doing forest fires with one of my good colleagues, Judith Kulig. I hope that uh, she'll get a good uh, attendance, too. So I'm, I'm uh, very grateful for all of the people who have come. I was privileged to be on study leave for the last year at the University of Western Australia. Uh, it's a great opportunity to, to, for self-enrichment and to learn some things that you might not have the opportunity to do uh, in, uh, at home. But having been away for a year, it is wonderful to be back in Lethbridge. So I'm going to start out saying a few words about Western Canada and, and development policy, and then we'll go across the uh, Pacific and across the continent of Australia to Western Australia to look at some of the challenges that they're facing in their resource boom. We'll uh, look specifically at a place called Quinana, at the development of an industrial complex and the industrial symbiosis that's developed there. And then we'll come back home and try and answer that question, what might Alberta learn from Western Australia? Back in 1957, Walter Gordon was the author of the Royal Commission on Canada's Economic Prospects a very important document in the post-World War II era that looked at the state of economic affairs in Canada and what we could do better. And two of the key issues that emerged from the, the Gordon Report were, first of all, the question of, of foreign ownership and the sale of natural resources in Canada to foreign investors. And that gave rise to the, the Watkins Report by Mel Watkins in 1968, the Canada Development Corporation, which lasted until 1986 when it was disbanded, and the Foreign Investment Review Agency, which operated from 1973 to 1985 as FIRA, and then from 1985 on, of course, that became Investment Canada. The other important issue of the, of the uh, Gordon Commission was the, the problem of regional economic disparity. Canadians weren't sharing equally or evenly in the, in the post-World War uh, prosperity, and particular regions, Atlantic Canada and the North, were, uh, were lagging far behind. So the Gordon Commission pointed to the need for federal expenditures to assist those lagging regions. Well, 1957 was not just the year in which the Gordon Report was published, it was the year in which the Diefenbaker government had a landslide victory, the Liberals were out, the Gordon Commission was a liberal document, and so nothing much happened until, until the liberals uh, came back into, uh, into government in the 1960s. So, a question for debate, perhaps, when we're, when we're done. Has anything really changed in Canada since the Gordon Commission back in 1957? Well, when the liberals began to address the issues that were raised by the Gordon Commission in the 1960s, they created a, uh, a department, the Department of Regional Economic Expansion, and they brought in legislation to share uh, industrial uh, development more equally in Canada. They couldn't just give it to Atlantic Canada and the North. They had to try and spread it around a little bit. So every province in Canada had a designated region set aside, a lagging region, for the injection of federal funds 
And in, in Alberta, it was southern Alberta, centered on Lethbridge, that was viewed as the most, other than, than, than was also another area in Lesser Slave Lake in, in the north. But southern Alberta was identified as the region of Alberta that was most in need of industrial incentives. It became part of Incentive Region B, and federal money was spent on initiatives such as this one. Swift Canadian, by the way, a foreign-owned branch plant, but nonetheless, a new manufacturing uh, enterprise that employed some 128 people. About 20% of the total capital cost of that plant was subsidized by the federal government. It was closed within a couple of years, so it really wasn't a terribly successful investment. That plant is still in our industrial park. It's now sake spice. They make uh, wasabi. But uh, that was uh, typical of the kinds of expenditures that were being made, first by DRI, and then that morphed into DRI, the Department of Regional Industrial Expansion. And then eventually that becomes Western Economic Diversification, or just WD for short. The Western-based regional development organization that had a mandate to support regional development in three sectors. Western Canada had 30% of Canada's land area, 30% of the population, only 10% of the manufacturing workforce. So, so it had a mandate to support manufacturing, a mandate to support services, a mandate to support high technology. The University of Lethbridge has done very well out of WD funding, but what has WD done lately? Well, uh, money for neuroimaging at the University of Saskatchewan. Money for a football stadium in Winnipeg. Money for the National Bee Diagnostic Center in Beaver Lodge, Alberta. So if you're thinking, there's a lot of politics going on in an organization like this. Yes, they're fostering regional development, but they're spreading the money out so that every MP has got a little something that they can point to as a way that they've contributed to their constituency. Question for debate. Should Western diversification be focusing its efforts on particular large-scale projects? Is a focused pro approach to economic uh, development politically possible, given we have 308 uh, House of Commons representatives spanning the country? And what has really happened to the goal of true economic diversification as it was identified by the Gordon Commission back in 1957. Well, to answer some of those questions, I'd like to take you across the Pacific, across the continent of Australia, to focus on the Cinderella State. The Cinderella State, so-called because Western Australia was the poorest, the smallest, the least developed, the least urban. But we know what happens to Cinderella. Right? When she finds that slipper. It's now Australia's western third. A third of the territory, but only 10% of the population, 75% of which are located in the Perth-Fremantle uh, metropolitan area. Western Australia is experiencing something that we know a little bit about in Alberta. They're experiencing a resource boom, a boom driven by iron ore, by oil, by gas, by gold, by alumina, by nickel. All for export, mainly to China.
This is a huge resource-driven, well, I could use the word bonanza again, just like I did uh, 10 years ago. It's, it's especially concentrated up in the northern part of, uh, of Western Australia, near towns like Tom Price and Paraburdu, uh, remote resource-producing hinterland. Well, I'll go backwards for a minute. Pilbara, way up here in the, uh, in the northern part of Western Australia. So lots of, of resources. Where are you going to find the people to extract those resources? Well, Western Australia is, is depending on something that we know a little bit about in, in Alberta. They're depending on a fly-in, fly-out workforce. 52% of the Western Australia resource uh, workforce is, is flying in and flying out of their job. Flying in for three weeks, flying home for a week. The fly-in, fly-out workers are sometimes problematic members of the community, uh, contributing to family stress, family breakdown, social problems, health problems, substance abuse problems. This gentleman here would be called a cashed-up bogan in Western Australia, a guy who's not very well educated, but he's got a lot of money. He's just come out of a mining camp, something like this one, and he's driving his ute down the road, making... Uh, tire tracks. This is called hooning. Uh, so the fly-in, fly-out workforce is, is essential to propel the resource boom, but it's socially very, very troubling. Does FIFO pose a threat to Alberta communities as it, as it may in Australia? What can we do to avoid the FIFO syndrome? Can we adapt to FIFO lifestyles? Well, what I'd like to talk about is a community that has avoided the FIFO lifestyle because essentially it goes back to 1952 when a company town, almost exactly the same time as a place called Kitimat was being planned in British Columbia, a company town was being planned on the edge of, of, of Western Australia called Quinana. Sixty years in the making, I'd like to tell you a little bit about that as, a, as an alternative to the fly-in, fly-out syndrome. So, we've got to go back to the Anglo-Persian Oil Company in, uh, in, in what is now Iran. In 1914, they built the world's largest oil refinery in Abadan. Abadan is on the Shat al-Arab at the very end of the, uh, the Persian Gulf. And this was a, uh, a major oil production facility associated with the oil fields in Iran. Now, when multinationals are first mooting the idea of a major investment, they have most of the power. They're in control of the situation. They have access to the technology. They have the capital. They're able to dictate terms to a country that's anxious to have the development. But once the investment is made, then the terms of the bargain shift a little bit. Raymond Vernon, a management theorist, is famous for uh, coining the, the idea of a theory of the obsolescing bargain. We had a deal. Ah, but that was then. This is now. Deals change and deals become obsolete. So Persia began to, to put pressure on, on Anglo-Persian. Eventually it becomes Anglo-Iranian. And finally they uh, force Anglo-Iranian to leave Iran, and Anglo-Iranian finds itself looking for a new oil refinery. And this is at a time, this is after the end of World War II, when the, the industrial geography of oil refineries is changing. 
Up until World War II, refineries were located where the oil was produced. After World War II, refinery locations shift from the production of the resource to the consumption of the resource. They move from production to markets, and the whole world geography of oil refineries changes. And so the refinery that was once in Abadan and has now been expropriated by Mossadegh, who later gets assassinated by the CIA, moves to Quinana. A $40 million investment in 1952, from 52 until 55 when the refinery was finished. This, for Western Australia, was a massive investment beyond anybody's wildest imagination. What on earth brought Anglo-Iranian to Western Australia? What brought Anglo-Iranian to a windswept beach that was known only for a ship that had washed up, the Quinana. Uh, there it is. It's still there. I'm standing at the stern of the uh, Quinana there. That's what's, uh, that's what's left of the ship. There was nothing to bring them there, with one exception, 12 million Australian pounds. Quinana was the outcome of an industrial incentive. The same kind of industrial incentive that was paid to Swift Canadian to build a plant in Lethbridge, except it was of a much smaller uh, quantity. The deal was for the state to provide the construction camp, the construction workers, the potable water, the industrial water, the electrical power, the railway that was needed, the dredging to open the harbor, the company town with a thousand houses over a period of three years, and to facilitate the immigration of a labor force coming from Abadan in Iran, coming from the United Kingdom, coming from all over the world, because Western Australia didn't have the workers skilled in the, in the needs that were required for a, for a refinery. So there is the refinery. By 1963, it accounted for 30% of all the imports into Western Australia, imports of crude oil that it was processing uh, entirely from uh, the Middle East. By the present day, Western Australian oil actually accounts for, for 40% of the, uh, of the crude oil. So this was a single large industrial facility that, of course, brought uh, dredging and ships into the, uh, you can see the, the, big, uh, the big jetties for the, uh, the shipping. Once the refinery was there, there was an impetus. It acted as a seed crystal and it was the, the nucleus for an industrial complex that developed all the way around that, that oil refinery. Uh, Anglo-Iranian becomes British Petroleum, BP, the people that brought you the big well uh, blowout in the, in the Gulf of Mexico in 2011. Their presence brought in Broken Hill proprietary uh, steel rolling mills and later a blast furnace. They encouraged the in migration of Alcoa to uh, refine alumina, uh, a cement plant, a, a fertilizer plant. BHP Billiton, it closes its, its blast furnace, but it opens a, a nickel uh, refinery. Chemical plants, bulk handling of grain, titanium processing, electrical power, electrical cogeneration, water purification, and by 2006, water was such an issue desalination of seawater by reverse osmosis. So this single oil refinery became the nucleus, at a cost of 12 million pounds, became the nucleus 
for a massive industrial complex. There it is. There's a map of the uh, complex, 30 kilometers uh, south of uh, Perth and, and Fremantle down here on Coburn Sound. Uh, this became, with the, the dredging of the sound, this became a massive bulk handling harbor. Well, it's been around for 60 years. What accounts for the industrial inertia that has led to the longevity of this project? long after things like Swift Canadian came and went. A new area of uh, study has been developed since the first seminal Scientific American article in, in 1989 that analyzes industrial relationships and resource flows in terms of industrial ecology or symbiosis, the same kind of concepts that are used in biology. The original article was based on the iron and steel scrap cycle, uh, which has been around for a long time. Uh, so there, there's a sense in which there was nothing really new in the use of byproducts, but new in the scale of the use and the planning of that use. And the first, uh, the first example uh, of uh, a, a successful industrial ecology project was in Kalundborg in Denmark. Just to, to touch on two elements of industrial ecology, labor and infrastructure sharing sees that when there's a whole bunch of plants operating together, they can share a lot of the same equipment, lowering the average cost that each has to pay for labor and for infrastructure. In some senses, they're competing for labor, but in another sense, they're sharing common access to a labor pool. Another idea of industrial ecology is the notion of byproduct synergies in which one plant uh, is going to uh, discard something that another can use, capture it, recover it, reuse it to the benefit both of the plant that would otherwise throw it away to the plant that's recovering it, and to all of us who don't have to suffer the negative externality of whatever that is being emitted into our atmosphere or, or landfilled. There's an example of the kinds of infrastructure we find in a major industrial complex. The, the, the pipes moving gases and liquids from one plant to another. The uh, power lines knitting the, the uh, complex together. Or the railway lines that were put in by the Western Australian government way back in the 1950s. Well, some of you might be thinking, this is common sense. I mean, we, we know about recycling of scrap. Uh, surely the invisible hand already of, of free markets already facilitates so-called symbiotic exchanges between businesses. But the question is, could there be market imperfections, as economists like to call them, uh, information asymmetries that interfere with symbiosis simply because the right hand is landfilling what the left hand is buying new because the left hand and the right hand are in different silos and they don't know what each other are doing. Is there a role for enhanced information transfer to increase the potential for industrial symbiosis? Just as an example, Quinana is facing a labor crunch. Uh, it, it was established in 1952. More than 50% of its, of its labor force will be retired by 2030. Where are they going to find the skilled trades to work in Quinana? They're going to be facing a lot of turnover and a skilled shortage. 
On the other hand, perhaps there's a role for joint, collective recruiting and a labor strategy that unites all of the firms working together in the common need for a skilled labor force. And where will they get it? Well, maybe from that fly-in, fly-out labor segment that will be a little older, a little wiser, and perhaps ready to settle down. There's a matrix of the interplant linkages, focusing only on the very largest plants in Quinana. Look at, uh, look at Air Liquide, uh, the, the first one here. This is a, a French multinational gas producer. It's more than 100 years old. And their output goes to seven different plants. There's a seven over there, the, the row total. Its output is going to seven different plants all within that Quinana complex. And where do they get their inputs? Well, in fact, Air Liquide actually gets its inputs from five different plants in the complex. So this is a level of interdependence and linkage that glues all of these industrial establishments together. And once they're all stuck together, what are they not likely to do? Shut down, close, and run somewhere else to save a buck on labor because they've got other things binding them in place. So these linkages create an industrial inertia that see a stable industrial area that's going to be around for a while. Sequential byproduct synergies such as uh, chemical plant A, the red one, they're producing ammonia. Uh, but, you know, they, they end up with some CO2 left over. They don't want the CO2. They only want the ammonia. So what do they do with the CO2? Well, they put it in the air. It's colorless, odorless. Nobody will know. The air has enough CO2. So plant B, which is air liquid, by the way, they could take that dirty old CO2, they could clean it up, they could refine it, they could compress it, put it in cylinders, and that's what's going to get our draft beer nice and foamy for us and, our, and put the bubbles in our, in our pop for sale, for sale locally. Wastewater effluent is not very nice stuff. So what they do with their wastewater effluent from domestic blackwater sewage is they run it out a long pipe way out into the ocean. That's the way it's handled in Western Australia. And I swam a lot in the beaches of, uh, of Western Australia. But what if, what if there's a crying need for industrial-type water? Not drinking water, but water for industrial purposes. So... So wastewater treatment A produces the wastewater effluent. Plant B takes that effluent. They run it through reverse osmosis, and they produce a new low total dissolved solids water product. Yes, it's a water product. It's not nice clean water that you'd want to drink, but you could wash your car with it, or you could uh, use it for titanium dioxide refining or in an oil refinery or in fertilizer synthesis. Lots of ways in which byproducts can get used or reused or treated to the benefit of all concerned. So you might think, okay, maybe there is some potential there. So let's start planning this. Let's plan some eco-industrial parks with byproduct recycling and reuse in mind. It's a win-win proposition. Well, somebody already had that idea. The United States. The U.S. President's Council on Sustainable Development tried on a pilot project. They funded 15 eco-industrial parks all across the United States in the 1990s. And as soon as the funding dried up, 
They failed miserably. They vanished in one way or another. They stopped being, either they were never built uh, or they were built, but as soon as there was no incentive to maintain those byproducts energies, they just became ordinary industrial parks. So it didn't work. All that planning somehow wasn't able to make it happen. Synergy Park in uh, suburban Brisbane was an application of this idea in Australia. And the local, the neighbors didn't like the look of it. The local uh, housing uh, residential areas uh, threw up a, a series of political uh, roadblocks, and Synergy Park failed. So this is an idea that really exists only two places in the world, Kalundborg in, in uh, Denmark at a relatively small scale and larger scale in Quinana. So how did Quinana do it? Well, they suffered from the silo problem that exists in all industrial districts. Different industries are focused on their needs, on their parent firms, on their markets, and they don't talk much to each other. They were forced to talk to each other because of the air pollution issues that, that caused the state of Western Australia to impose air quality testing on the, all of the industries. And because they all were, were dealing with air quality monitoring, they came together and created an industrial council. An industrial council with a mandate to promote the harmonious coexistence of industry, the community, and the environment. And what it did was provide an opportunity for plant managers and engineers to exchange information. I got too much of this. I really need some of that. And the council provided an information transfer institution that, that brought byproduct synergies to the fore in a way that hasn't succeeded when these things have been planned. So, issue for debate. Can we retrofit industrial symbiosis and regional synergies to existing industrial clusters in Canada? Can we do more to enhance ecological integration of our industrial parks. There's the biggest industrial park in, in uh, Alberta, up Greater Alley. Have a look at the website. Look for a single bit of evidence that industrial ecology is, is, is uh, on the radar screen. It's not there. Let's come closer to home. There's Sharing Industrial, uh, industrial Park in Lethbridge, the, the big industrial park that's still expanding in Lethbridge. Look at the amenities. I'm ripping this right off their website. It's quoted word for word. They're going to give us service land, stormwater retention, great highways. It's near the Walmart. Uh, Lethbridge Sports Park is there. Integrated pathways. Where are the opportunities for industrial symbiosis? Where are the opportunities for byproduct or labor force or infrastructure sharing? At a micro scale for small service-oriented industrial parks like sharing, industrial symbiosis could begin quite modestly. Why not an industrial scale version of Lethbridge Free Cycle? How could we bring our industrial managers and decision makers together to enhance information flow about the symbiotic opportunities that exist, even if they're not on quite the same scale as they are in Quinana? Those are some of the issues that I hope you might want to debate this afternoon. They're some of the things that I learned from my experience in Western Australia and for which I want to thank you for your attention.